Hello and welcome to the Falling Star Wrestling Podcast. In the show today, myself and Jimmy are discussing Deathmatch Wrestling. This is to coincide with the UK's hottest Deathmatch wrestler and Deathmatch outlaw Big F and Joe coming to Falling Star Wrestling this Saturday. More about that in a bit. Welcome to the show. My name is Patrick Vincent Crown and I'm your host for the show today. You can just call me PVC. That's fine. I'm joined by the man that puts the star in Falling Star Wrestling. It's my friend and yours, Jimmy Starr. So, on Saturday 16th of July, Falling Star Wrestling returns to the Westland Sports and Social Club for another round of Fight Night. We are in for a red hot night in more than one way with the return of fan fave Big F and Joe. What has Joe got in store for Falling Star Wrestling? I guess there's only one way to find out. Join us as our doors open at 6.30 with the action starting at 7.30pm with tickets available on the door. If you can't make it to the show, then make sure you're following Falling Star Wrestling on Facebook for results and fallout from the event. Myself and Jimmy will be reviewing the show on our next edition of the podcast as well, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. As always, be aware of strong language and themes throughout the podcast while we talk about Deathmatch Wrestling. So over the last, I don't know how many years, Jim, you've left your fair share of blood and sweat in the ring, you know, from trying to create drama to add to a match or story, whether that's through blading or hard way in hardcore matches. But in your decades in pro wrestling, have you ever tried a death match? No, not really. I think the uh, closest that I've ever come to it was our infamous Chicago's over 18 show had thumbtacks in it and we were hitting each other with everything and there was tons of blood and a staple gun and all that sort of stuff you know it was quite tame to call it a death match it was a hardcore match definitely i think to say it was a death match would be going a little bit a little bit too far the dog collar match again i, I wouldn't call it a death match but it had you know it had the tacks and it was going to have a staple gun spot in it, but I forgot the staple gun. I left it backstage. It certainly had some blood and some drama. You know, anything that we've done in this FSW, aside from the Chicago show, any sort of blood or guts was normally built up for a reason. It was the end of a quite a long feud, and it was like, this is a good way to round it off, and where can these two people or this tag team possibly go? But judging by what I see online and a few things that I've seen live, I don't think I'll call those death matches. And no, it wasn't just sort of chaos for the sake of it. Let's say let's put it that way. I suppose there's differences between, and for the people out there that don't really know, there is hardcore wrestling, which you would say involves things like thumbtacks and sometimes maybe barbed wire. But then there is a little bit of a crossover in there because in death matches, you also could feature barbed wire and thumbtacks. But I think in my mind, when I think of deathmatch wrestling, I always think of the light tubes and I've never ever had a light tube smashed over me. I don't think I've ever even picked up a light tube properly or swang it or anything like that. So that's always what kind of separates deathmatch wrestling for me. But um, have you ever been hit with a light tube? No, no, I haven't. And yeah, it is things like that. It's things like, uh, you know, light tubes, sheets of glass where they attach those razor blades to boards. 
those fucking skewers that they hammer into their heads and when they let go that you know most of them are still just stuck in their scalp stuff like that i don't even know what they're called but they're like skewer things do you know what i mean where they actually rather than gimmick a staple gun which is easy to do um they actually use staple guns and people staple money to their head or money to their tongue or i've seen people that have stuff staple to the soles of their feet i've seen hypodermic needles stuck in people's faces and also the extremity of the stunts they do as well i consider that very much in in, in line with the deathmatch scene jumping off of buildings and stuff and jumping off of extremely high rickety ladders through things that are on fire Fire's a very deathmatch thing to me. Jumping through tables that are on fire that are covered in structures that they've built out of light tubes or glass and things like that. You know, uh, a lot of these deathmatch things are held outside, so there's normally a lorry or a truck that they can do a move off of and uh, through, you know, normally off of something, off of something extremely high through things that are extremely dangerous. Also, I sort of consider deathmatch shows more outlaw shows in the sense that the guys who are on them are normally either they're, they're not in shape they haven't really got wrestling gear and it's not because it's a part of their character they're not the one team or the one wrestler on the show who hasn't got wrestling gear because it's a part of their character say like the nlp but it's more like the uh you know it's more like the fact that they can't be asked to buy wrestling gear maybe because they know it's going to get covered in in clara but you know i mean in terms of like blood and wrestling and weapons and you know even barbed wire i mean we're going back to the to the 70s and stuff like that i remember i mean i I remember seeing old memphis tapes of jerry lawler and the sheik not the iron sheik the original sheik sabu's uncle using fire and stuff like that and having barbed wire um you know wrapped around some parts of the ring normally the the turnbuckle post not not the ropes as, as barbed wire but the barbed wire wrapped around the turnbuckle post and you know i've seen some extremely bloody old school sort of dog collar matches that are built around violence and stuff like that and built around blood the idea of like blading and blood and violence and using weapons and using quite extreme weapons, Texas death matches and stuff and ball rope matches and dog collar matches and cage matches, ladder matches. These aren't new concepts. You know, they've been going for, you know, 50, 60 years. They've been going on for a long time. It's obviously evolved from from that kind of thing. But I think the thing that some of the deathmatch promotions, you know, miss is, is like I said before, you know, these guys who, you know, when they were in those positions, having Texas deathmatches and ball rope matches and ladder matches, it, it, it always was the boiling point of a feud. You know, they couldn't go anywhere else with it. You know, this is six months of weekly territory wrestling um and they've cut every promo they can they've had title changes they've had cheating they've had everything everything possible they fit it into you know sort of weekly not even tv but episodic sort of um, house shows um let's take memphis for example they used to wrestle in um I can't remember what the building was called now, but they used to wrestle in the same building every month. 
I think Monday was their big day. They used to wrestle in that in the venue that could fit about 8,000 people in it. And that was where they sort of would continue their storylines. And if you're doing something every week, then you don't need to change things. So promoters over the years have come up with some pretty neat and cool ways to make things interesting and eventually obviously they have to get a little bit more chaotic and a little bit more bloody that i don't necessarily mind i think it's just the fact that if you haven't got any build up to something which we would consider even even just a hardcore match or even um something that's a little bit out of the ordinary um, if you haven't got a build up to it it just does seem pointless i mean you know there's skill in wrestling there's skill in being able to get out there and tell a story, especially over the course of six months on a weekly or even sometimes daily basis and have a big blow-off match with blood and chaos and whatever. There's skill in that, but there isn't skill in just putting on a show where two people can hit each other with various implements. I mean, that's, that's not wrestling. That's just two people who are willing to hit each other and not too worried about being hurt. Well, there's loads of nutcases out in the world who are happy to do that, but would they be happy to sit there and, and take the years of abuse and the years of skill and the years of training and psychology and being out there in front of people that it takes to actually learn how to tell a story to get to that point where you can maybe perform one of those kind of matches um, and actually be able to tell a story with it, you know? I think that's... That probably speaks for the majority of deathmatch wrestling, like you mentioned there with, you know, the street clothes. I would get that if I was going to do that, you know, once a week. I wouldn't want to ruin my wrestling gear, especially if you spent a little bit of time on it, when you can just bung on a shirt and a pair of shorts and, and jeans and, and boots and go in there and, and get all bloody and, and glassed up and all cut and stuff like that. But um, I think there is a certain skill, and it might not be skill per se but there's a certain kind of toughness and endurance that you have to have to be a deathmatch wrestler and I think you also have to be quite creative as well because when you take the idea of a hardcore match and then try and escalate it because that's all what deathmatch wrestling is it's just taking one thing and escalating it and over the years if you've ever watched sort of tournament of death by czw You'll watch the first couple of tournaments and you'll sort of think, wow, that's that's really quite violent and brutal. But then as it goes along and as the years go along, they have to keep coming up with more extreme, more unique, more different ideas to kind of top the last one. You have to tip your hat to deathmatch wrestlers and their ingenuity because the things I've seen in those tournament of deaths or, you know, cage of death those events have been incredible and you know the the setups that they have to do the different kind of constructions with the light tubes and the barbed wire and the balls to go up on top of a building and jump off and you might say it's absolutely insane and crazy but they're doing it for a reason they're doing it sort of for the same reasons that we go out there and you know take a suplex and take a back body drop or take a check and take a bump and maybe even we get a little bit more extreme like I jumped through a ladder at the Christmas bash match you know we do that to kind of entertain the people but we also have a story to tell and we can get up the next day and and go and go to work and not be not be too battered up but um the escalation becomes too much and then the story well I guess maybe there's never really been a story in deathmatch wrestling and I could be wrong because I'm not well versed in deathmatch wrestling I've seen half a dozen 
tournaments of death. I've seen the odd match. I've seen the odd bump. So I can't really say that I've ever felt a story. And I guess when you have a tournament, there is a there is a story built into a tournament. But I'm I'm not really sure. What what about yourself, Jim? Like, have have you ever seen any of the tournament of death? And what do you think about like the creativity of of deathmatch wrestling? There's a market for it. There's definitely a market for it. I've even known, and I know one currently, Big Joe, who's making a real mark for himself, not just in this country, but in in America, as a deathmatch wrestler. He's been in a CCW tournament of death. Um, I think he's about to go over to another big tournament soon. Now, he can wrestle. He can put on a show and wrestle. I've booked him. I've used him. I've wrestled him. I know the guy can work, and I know the guy gets a job. When you stand there and you talk to him and you look at his body, he is just mutilated. He's, he's scarred up to fuck, and he loves it. He absolutely loves it. He he sees the art and he sees the beauty in deathmatch wrestling, which which I don't see. But getting back to the tournaments of death and cage of death and things like that, I don't think I've seen too many tournaments of death, but I've definitely seen a few Cage of Death matches, and I've seen um, the main promotion here being CZW, which I don't think you can get really much much more hardcore than. Um, I know that there's one called IWA Mid-South, which Ian Rotten runs, but that's sort of really lowbrow. Like there's um, people like Cassius Ono and, and CHCM Punk wrestled a lot for them when they first started up, but in terms of actual people watching there's there's never anyone there so they're the sort of two that i can think of that i've seen a fair bit of czw being being the top one and they sort of their normal shows are normally a little bit better because to be fair they, they have some quite athletic young lads on there as well who try and do again the most craziest athletic shit you could ever see i think czw sort of philosophy on wrestling is just go out there and do anything and everything you can. Doesn't have to make sense. Doesn't don't have to tell a story. You know, you just go out there and do anything and everything you can, whether it be a high flying match, a wrestling match, a singles match, a death match, whatever it may be. Just go out there and do anything you can. And they've got a they've got a crowd. Um, and the stuff I've seen again hasn't been for me but then if you say you know what do you reckon to like Mick Foley and Randy Orton I'd say it's probably one of the best hardcore matches I've ever seen probably one of the best matches I've ever seen because both guys aren't traditionally hardcore well sorry that's a lie one guy is traditionally known for his big bumps and his hardcore stuff and his deathmatch stuff in Japan and the other guy at the time was a was a rookie who was looking for an element of toughness to his character. And Cactus Jack came out of retirement to give him that. And it had a great build up. It had a great story. So whatever happened in the match, there was some substance behind it. And they took their time. And it wasn't just right. You hit me with a light tube. I'll hit you with a light tube. Then you hit me with another light tube. I'll hit you with four light tubes. And then you hit me with one of those empty big plastic containers of water that's on a bit of wood. And then I'll suplex you on the outside. And, you know, it wasn't my go, your go type thing. I think if you can work and tell a story, 
you can tell a story in deathmatch wrestling. I do believe it's possible. Like I said, with Cactus Jack and Randy Orton and Cactus Jack and Triple H at the Royal Rumble, you can tell a story. But whatever match you're having, whatever match you're having, whether it be a death match, whether it be a submission match, whether it be a two out of three falls, or it be a ladder match, there has to be a story going into it and there has to be a story during the match because otherwise the promotion won't grow, your wrestlers won't grow or get anything out of it and you're not going to get extra people coming back and especially with deathmatch wrestling, it's only going to hit a certain height. I mean, if you think, right, I'll go to the tournament of death, but I'll go and watch the tournament of death, right? And you get like 400, 500 people there, you know, let's be generous and say a thousand. You get a thousand people sat outside for the tournament of death and you watch the first tournament of death and it's just the most fucking crazy thing you've ever seen in terms of like just lunacy glass barbed wire up the ass cactus in the eyeball you know electrodes on the nipples fucking people getting hit with fucking the streamers and lawnmowers and you know anything you could possibly think of and that's the first match and one lad wins and then someone else has got to carry on what's the second match got how can they improve on that the other guys have just used a shitload of weapons maybe they can find some different weapons maybe they can focus on their pie impact stuff well, they've got to do a tournament. They've got to do more matches. So by the end of it, I mean, fuck. Go, go, go in to see something like that, like a tournament of deathmatch. Just I can't see any any point in that kind of thing. But seeing a deathmatch on a show that's been built upright between two guys who can work, I can see how that can draw. I can see how it can work. Um, and whether the match is for me or not, at least on the card, there might be a match that is more my style so I can enjoy that and then I'll hang around for the death match because, you know, I've paid my ticket entry. But something like a tournament of death, it, it doesn't seem to do anything for anyone apart from hurt people. And wrestling's always already got a bad name, especially for injuries and premature deaths and people taking pain pills and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of these guys, I mean, you just... You just can't take that abuse on a on a weekly basis. It's just not possible for the human body. In terms of watching some of these spots or montages and things like that, what's some of the craziest shit you've ever seen? I think the the craziest one I probably saw was I think it was at a tournament of death. And I can't remember who the guy was wrestling, but it was Zandig, who was the owner and booker of CZW at the time. And it was the finale. And I believe like the year before, probably Zandig had won it or somebody had won it with a with a big move off of one of their little moving trucks through like all the light tubes and all the tables and stuff. So then this one was an end. It was literally Zandig picks up the guy and does a falcon arrow off the top of a building. And it sounds ridiculous and it sounds out there but this is true you can google it you can find it out there and it's literally two guys jumping off of a building and i'm not saying like a normal house probably taller than a, than a house but like so high up and they just come crashing down through tables light tubes 
glass, what, whatever's down there, just to kind of break their fall a little bit. And that was probably. Did they fall into a back of? Sorry, did they fall into the back of a flatbed when they did that? Full of glass and shit and lunacy. Was that that fall? Was that that thing? It could have been that one. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it in years, but I just remember seeing these two guys on the top of the building and Zandig picked the. Was it a falcon out? It was like a gorilla press falcon bomb type thing. Yeah, and they just come crashing down, whether it was in the flatbed of a truck or, or on the floor or something like that. But I just remember just these two guys just come crushing down and just obliterating all of this glass and all of the tables and all the all the chaos just going about. And then that being the finish to the tournament. I mean, if you're going to go out, that's that's the way to go out. That is the big finale. Like you say, when you have a tournament and you have to keep one-upping each other, they definitely did that. Nobody was going to do anything crazier than that one. And then another spot that I saw, this wasn't as extreme or as crazy, but it sticks into my mind to this very day. It was, it was one of the early tournaments of death. And, you know, you have your normal wrestlers come out. You've got wrestler A, who's sort of slightly balding, who's got a fuzzy beard, a T-shirt with, with his arms ripped off. He's got his jorts on and his boots, and he's got his hands taped up, and out comes this other guy. His name was Sexy Eddie. Now, I don't know whether this guy was roped into coming to Tournament Death and didn't know what he was in for, or whether he was just like, hey, this is funny, this is a bit of a gimmick. He came out in just pants, like just wrestling wrestling trunks. Didn't have like knee pads on, elbow pads on, didn't have a T-shirt on, didn't have anything. And this guy comes down, and he's actually playing a heel, which... I quite liked in these things. You don't often see a heel or a baby face. It's just two guys just bashing the, the hell out of each other with light tubes and, and thumbtacks and cactuses and all that kind of stuff. And this guy, Sexy Eddie, comes out and you could tell he could work a little bit. He was trying to work the crowd. He kind of reminded me of Nunzio, that kind of stature, quite slender, muscular, looked like he could probably get on the mat and roll around a little bit. And I can't remember what the spot was, but he just, he either got slammed or pushed through glass or somebody hit him with a light tube. And then he just stands up and he's got this cut in his arm. And honestly, it was, it had to be an inch or two wide. And it was just, honestly, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Bottom. Do you remember Bottom? Yeah, I love With um, Rick Malin. Yeah. Remember the, the, the bit when I think Eddie cuts um, Rick's finger off and the and the blood ah, yeah. just spurts out like a fountain? He, he, Honestly, he, he, I yeah, s- he jumps off whilst he's cutting a turkey, yeah. Yeah, honestly right at this tournament of death this guy like gets up he grabs his like wrist to kind of sort of stem the blood a little bit from from where he's been cut on his forearm and honestly you could see the blood like shooting up it must have been like a foot in the air and i'm like what is this guy doing like this is this is insane and i don't know if that was the last ever tournament of death i watched but it stuck with me is not being one of those crazy things because i've seen people get hit with strimmers like you say i've seen people get caught up in barbed wire i've seen somebody who got hit with you know those rub uh, plastic kind of like baseball bats where if you just hit somebody with them they probably wouldn't hurt but somebody had meticulously stuck thumbtacks obviously with the point upwards to this plastic bat. And I just remember this guy picked it up and because they're light as anything, you can really get a proper swing. And I just remember one guy, he just swang at this other guy and just hear boom. And he goes on the floor, sort of takes a, takes a bump and gets up. It was so weird. It was just this line, this, just this patch of just flat embedded thumbtacks in this guy's head. I'm like, Oh my God. 
I can imagine that probably didn't hurt immediately at the time, but I, I just I just felt for the guy when he had to go back and get all of those taken out, whether it was somebody with a pair of tweezers or some pliers or getting the end of a claw hammer and having to, to pull these thumbtacks out of this guy's head because they looked proper embedded. It was almost like some sort of like scarification kind of like ornamentation, like piercings on his head. It was it was kind of insane. And Back then, this this was before I learned how to wrestle. And I don't know whether that has anything to do with it. You know, by the time I actually learned how to take a bump and apply a wrist lock, I kind of lost the interest in deathmatch wrestling. But I actually wanted to give it a go back then. I thought it was a cool thing. I thought, you know, these guys don't look like wrestlers. Anyone can do it. You just have to fall off of things and go through glass and have the, I guess, the balls and the guts and the, the stupidity to actually do it. But... I don't really have that kind of uh, want and desire to do it. Although maybe one time, one time, mm, one time, may- maybe, maybe one time. I don't know if the payment's right. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing. I mean, one time is, but the thing is, I guarantee you, if you had a death match with whoever, I, I don't know, if you had a death match with, with, with someone, just out of the fact that you've been rest- wrestling now 10 years, and learn the craft, there would be psychology in it. And no, no matter what you decided to do in that match, no matter how extreme it was, it would build up to that point and it would work as a match and as well as a sort of gory death match where people are looking at things and and, and cheering and, and wanting you to die. You know, just the fact that, that you're in it, you're not going to sit there and just think, oh, I'm going to, pick the first thing I can find up and twat someone over the head with it, you're going to build up to it and it's going to, it's going to escalate into something crazy because it's a death match and that's what you've been asked and paid to do and that's what the audience want to see. But you're probably going to interject a bit of psychology into it. So it will just naturally be better than just two fat fucks, like you say, and a pair of jorts and a, and a couple of wife beaters just hitting each other with something because they couldn't get into real wrestling school or couldn't get through or graduate any kind of real wrestling school because it was too hard for them. Do you get what I'm saying? You would probably naturally have some psychology in it. I would, but I'd, I've never had a death match. I've never really spoken to anybody that has a de- has had a death match. And this might be something to, to say to Big Joe the next time he's on an FSW show. But like, do you plan death matches like you do a normal wrestling match i assume you go out there with an idea i assume you go out there with a finish and you know who's going to go over it's not a case of who can take the the biggest battering and then that person wins the match i'm sure there is a finish and it's predetermined like wrestling that's no secret but do you just kind of go out there and then do you just grab the first thing that you see or i don't know do you just sort of say to the person if they are an experienced death match wrestler do they just go out there and go right Okay, we're going to go light tube first. I'm going to punch you in the head with this thing. I'm going to staple your nuts to a to a piece of paper. Then I'm going to grab the ladder, pile all these things on you, and run over you with a monster truck. Like I don't know how that kind of works. And 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 my wrestling brain makes me think you would start off s- small and you go for the stapler first. Then you maybe transition into the light tube. Then you'd go for the ladder. Then you'd go for the monster truck. But like, would somebody who doesn't know how to tell stories and doesn't know how to quote unquote wrestle, go for the monster truck first. I, I don't know what people's psychology is going into deathmatch. I, I would assume, and this is only me assuming just from doing a few hardcore matches, uh, you know, and, and quite extreme ones is, is you sort of sit there and you sort of say to each other, right, if we just start off with a little bit of brawling, 
I'll take over on you and I'll hit you with some things first. Like I'll just hit you with whatever's lying around, but then you, and then you take over and hit me with whatever's lying around. But then when we get into our big spots, like our big moves, I'll power bomb you through the table. That'll be our first big spot. And then, you know, I'll take over on you for a bit. We'll get a bit of a falsy out of that. And then, and then the big spot where I have to cooperate with you, like you stapling my nuts to a fucking 20 pound note, do that uh, afterwards. That can be a bit of a comeback. And then the crowd will really pop for that. I'll obviously have to really sell that and fucking try and get the thing out and nuts whilst we're doing it. Yeah, get the ladder out then and start, whilst I'm trying to pull this thing out and us, get the ladder out and then get the big light tube thing that we've already rigged up and put it on top of that, ready for the big spot at the end, but we'll tease it because I'll cut you off by fucking beheading you with a light tube. And, you know, I think it's just, uh, I think it's just set up like these segments. Normally you sort of matches where you use a lot of toys and use a lot of gimmicks and things like that do sort of have to be, set up in in segments i suppose it would be just a little bit like we set up the hardcore match at christmas you know just brawl at the start hit me with a few things you know nothing too crazy and then and then you know afterwards you know we'll start ramping it up i think i think that's probably probably more or less exactly the same way but you're using more dangerous implements i i would assume i mean i think that's the way i'd go about setting it up and i think that's the way that you'd probably go about setting it up and then build it up to the most extreme thing that you, you're going to do at the end, whatever that may be. I remember seeing, going back to one of the worst things I've ever seen, it wasn't the most, it could have been one of the most dangerous things I've ever seen, but it was, uh, it was nasty. It was fucking nasty. I can't remember one of the lad's names, but he was meant to be a legend in hardcore wrestling. And then there was a guy called Necro Butcher, who I'm sure you've heard of. And I'm sure that some of our listeners have heard of. He was obviously totally insane and, and, and was known for his hardcore wrestling. Saw a short shoot interview of him, very intelligent guy, but just obviously insane in the ring. Had no physique to talk about, had no, wasn't the best looking chap to talk about. So maybe Deathmatch Wrestling was where he had to turn to, I don't know. But the guy he was wrestling had, had a really, really, really bad mullet. I remember that. But they were having like a, a light tube match, really, more than anything. There was, there, was, there was weapons, other weapons used, but it was more of a light tube match. And they were both so exhausted and so hurt by the end of it. And they breathed in so much of that light tube shit and dust, especially that Necro Butcher guy. It was almost like he could hardly breathe. He was fucked. It, but it was more than being gassed. It was like... He was, you know, it was almost like someone had punctured his lung. The final spot, I assume it was meant to be the final spot, they built this big, I can only describe it as like this big sort of huge square rig out of light tubes. There must have been about sort of 50 light tubes in it, but it was a, just a big sort of square um, it's like Jenga, isn't it? Where they sort of stack them side to side and on top of each other across, isn't it? It was sort of, I don't know, it, 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 it was hollow. So it was it was square, but then there was light tubes. So so it was taped square, but obviously it wasn't quite square because light tubes, uh, some of them were different lengths and some, you know, they just bought every kind of light tube on earth. It was quite high because they had about, you know, like I said, between about sort of, 50 60 light tubes making this big rig 
but they placed it in the middle of the um, of the ring. And this guy who this mullet wearing fucking loser, um, again, whose name I can't remember, a legend in the hardcore world, but um, he can't have been that much of a legend because he drew literally 30 people in a hall somewhere. And Necro Butcher, now Necro Butcher took the superplex off the top rope through these light tubes. Now, bearing in mind, before they'd done that move, they'd smashed about 200 light tubes on each other in some way, shape or form. So they were all bloodied up or whatever. But one of the light tubes had just, I don't know what had happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. But that superplex just cut Necro Butcher under the arm, under sort of under the armpit. But it left like a sort of a really, really extremely deep laceration under his armpit that what it was going um going from his back to sort of roughly where his nipple was you know but it was an open wound like you could see inside of the guy's armpit when he lifted his armpit up and when he shut it it just was pouring pouring with blood and they tried to wrap it up so they could continue the match i think but it just got to the point where you know they had obviously it was a hall with 40 people in it. They had no one there who could help them. There was no ambulance there. There was no nothing. Just fucked, basically. And he was losing blood at an alarming rate. Like, he'd hit a vein, quite a fucking serious vein there. So the match ended. Everyone sort of gone silent. There was a lot of confusion. There was quite a long time in getting him, getting Necro Butcher out from in the ring into the uh, into the backstage where I assume he instantly had to go to hospital. But it was a bad, bad, like, if I think that within sort of 45 minutes to an hour of that happening, he could have lost enough blood to die. I mean, it was, it was awful. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It's fucking, it's vile. But watching that, I thought to myself, there's 40 people in that audience. Was there a build-up to this match? Was there a point to this happening to this Necro Butcher guy? Did he get a good enough payoff for that to happen? Is Necro Butcher a wealthy man now? I don't know. I would assume not. The match itself was awful. Every spot was botched because none of them physically could do what they wanted to do in terms of actual moves like even something simple as a suplex was mistimed and someone would land on their, their head. But the superplex didn't look like a good superplex. It looked like two fucking amateurs had just fallen off the top rope and one of them had really, really hurt himself on this light tube rig they made. So it was pointless. It was just, it was, it was pointless and dangerous and guys have got hurt. I can tell you fucking countless times where I've seen people really get hurt on these hardcore shows. And when you watch something like the WWE or AW or, you know, even when you go to our shows and go to a lot of shows in this country now where people really learn how to wrestle. Yeah, sure, there's injuries and sure, we see some nasty things sometimes, but it's it's very, very rare on those kind of shows, the danger level is just ramped up to such a fucking extreme amount that it's something that in the end is is sort of slowly taking people's lives and, and, and just carrying on on that tangent whilst I can remember. I looked at a sort of obituary thing 
they were doing these concussion-based things and uh, in wrestling, post-concussion syndrome and all these other different bits and, you know, suicides in wrestling and drug abuse in wrestling and all that sort of stuff. And they looked at um, the CZW roster from when it started, which I think was about in 1999, 2000, to whenever I read it, which may have been a couple of years ago. And, you know, about sort of fucking 20 or 30 wrestlers had died. And the only reason we didn't know about it is because we didn't hear about them. You know, we didn't know who they were. They were just guys probably like like we are just trying to just having fun and wrestling, you know, and they're, and they're dead. And none of them were probably even my age, you know, in their 20s, in their, in their 30s and shit like that. And, you know, a lot of, lot of them were drugs, I have to say. Um, you know, not pain pills, but actual recreational drugs. So you can't put the blame on wrestling solely for that. But still, it attracted those kind of guys. A lot of guys for suicide and things like that. Um, there was a guy called uh, Brian Damage or Brain Damage or something like that. He was a big guy. He'd wear a Punisher T-shirt, you know, to come out. I think he used to use a weed whacker. I think that was him. Um, he died, died of fucking um, post-concussion syndrome, but, you know, I think he hung himself, depression. So you can't really call that post-concussion syndrome, but they did say when they looked at his brain, it was fucked. Do you know what I mean? Like his brain was, wasn't, you know, the way a, a 30-year-old man's brain should be. This was severely impacted by severe trauma to the head. Um, a lot of guys, a lot of these guys are fucking gone, you know. But I suppose if you are in the deathmatch wrestling scene and by all accounts it's not very well paid, you surely are doing it for the love. Like, I can't imagine there's many people telling you or forcing you to do it. And I can't imagine that the paydays are that good that you can't literally step away from it. So you must be going in there because you love the adulation of, you know, the 40, 50 fans in attendance or, you know, people coming up to you in the streets or after shows and telling you how cool and insane you are, or maybe getting a little bit of commission off the, off the tapes that are sold, or maybe you manage to sell a t-shirt at the tournament of death. I don't know how it works because we're not really from that world, but like surely you have to do it because you absolutely love it like i can't imagine any other reason why unless you maybe have some serious mental issues i'm not saying that every wrestler out there that does deathmatch wrestling has severe mental issues but you mentioned there a lot of like drug problems and things like that kind of go together don't they like with you know depression and anxiety and things like that often lead to other other substance abuses and then they can lead on to especially if you've had head trauma they can lead on to like death and suicide and stuff like that so you kind of have to admire these people because if it is something that you love and you'd have this disregard for your body and you don't care you're punk rock you don't give a damn you want to go out there you want to bleed you want to take bumps you want to do some crazy stuff you want to entertain the fans whether it's on video whether they're in attendance or or it's on youtube or anything like that you, you've got to love it right jim yeah i think there's a few things that go into it i, I think one yeah you've got to absolutely love it and for some reason that deathmatch style of wrestling is more attractive to you than the professional style, which is what obviously we do. Maybe there's a sadomasochistic element in that, who knows? But I think also there's a sadomasochistic element in professional wrestling because that, that hurts too. But it's the bumps and things that hurt. It isn't landing on contact, you know, it's the bumps that hurt and it's getting twatted around the head constantly with chairs and stuff that is doing the, the real damage. So there's a sadomasochistic element. The the next element, which is probably going to be an unpopular one, is that there's guys out there who are willing to go 
really, really far and stick hypodermic needles in their face. But if you took them to a professional wrestling school, would either be told to fuck off or just would find it too hard to stick with it and just wouldn't make the grade in an actual professional wrestling environment for some reason. But in being a, a psychopath environment, in the, you know, they, they're 10 out of 10, quite happy to uh, staple uh, money to their bollocks and, uh, you know, set themselves on fire. So there's those type of guys. But there's also the other type of guys who I think that, I mean, we've only, the other the other day when we were sort of hard talking about this, and this is all what made me think of it as the topic for today. There's only two people I can think of really that have gone in from sort of death matches and made a hell of a lot of money. And I don't just mean been in the WWE and popped their head in. I mean made a hell of a lot of money. And one's obviously Mick Foley and the other one's John Moxley. I can't think of any off of hand that have gone from deathmatch wrestling to being the tippity top of, of the business, if that makes sense. You know, um, again, there's probably a few who are in the WWE at the moment and in AEW, like Joe Janela and all that shit. And, and, you know, are they at the tippity top of that promotion and will they ever be? I don't know. Maybe that it was a gateway into wrestling and they just found themselves going in, into a more lucrative direction. I don't know. But I think the sort of three, the, the, the ways I, I explain it there, there's more, but I think there's probably the three main directions, you know, and that is, yeah, that they love it. They're fairly talented, um, but yeah, they love the death matches. The guys who were uh, just not cut out to be professional wrestlers, but are cut out to do incredibly dangerous and monstrous things. So that will get them put on a, an extreme wrestling show. And then there's the guys who it's just their gateway into the wrestling business, but then they've found actually it's their niche and they're actually extremely talented too. So it's, it's become a very profitable endeavor and got them, got them noticed in, 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 on, you know, on the bigger shows, you know, I suppose it's similar to, to finding a gimmick within wrestling. You know, you might not, always set out to be a certain character like you know we talk about sassy bear quite a lot on the fallen star wrestling podcast and he's now a member of the roster that's really sort of shining right now but i don't know whether aaron ever thought that becoming a professional wrestler he would ever transition into that role and that would become his sort of like bread and butter right now and i guess in in a weird kind of twisted way like you kind of half explained there Maybe you just kind of fall into that thing. Maybe you want to take a bump and then you can get up and walk it off. And one time maybe you get hit over the head with something and the blood starts trickling down your head and you think, you know what? That wasn't half bad. I think I can take this and people start reacting to it. And then I suppose it's a cascading and, and you know, you just kind of go downhill and, and gain momentum with this whole thing and you just sort of fall into this this deathmatch thing and you know we talk about Big Joe because he's worked for Falling Star Wrestling quite a lot and you know we're both very friendly with, with Big Joe and stuff like that but you know, I don't want to speak for him, but he's definitely getting that momentum within within the deathmatch wrestling scene. But I don't know how that came about, whether it was just once he, he took a crazy bump and people said, hey, you could do this. And then it snowballed from there. But I've not really been set on that path, although maybe I could have in an earlier life because as the Falling Star Wrestling fans have seen, I'm not shying away from 
big bumps. Like, for instance, when I had the ladder match uh, against Tom Falcon at Linsport, you know, we were at the top of a ladder, took a big old bump. There was a few bits in that match where we were chair shots to the back and chair shots to the head. We did a few moves on the outside. We did a big spot off the top turnbuckle, threw some ladders. Again, I did a similar thing at Linsport when we had the three-way hardcore match, jumped off the top rope to the outside through a table. There were numerous chair shots in there. There was a few kind of crazy moves as well. And then going back to the Christmas bash match, you know, jumping through a ladder and getting hit over the head with trays and all this kind of business. Like, I could see where people could transition into that because that sort of wrestling is fun. And maybe it's a thing of like, you know, it's an adrenaline junkie thing. It is fun. So maybe you do want more. Like I do enjoy doing those fun kind of hardcore matches. And maybe if I did do a death match, then maybe I'd be like, oh, I could do that again. But I can't imagine myself ever doing it over and over and over. And I'm not sure I have the, the creativity and the, and the body and the toughness to be able to go and do it sort of week in and week out. And I think it is a toughness within wrestling, whether it's like a, a macho bravado on the outside or whether it's just like an intestinal fortitude, as Mick Foley always says, like he never comes across as like this sort of super adrenaline junkie kind of guy he just looks like a guy that can take a bit of pain and and just get up and get on with it it's like for him it's not like look what i can do it's more just like hey i did that that was cool right but like when i see some of these like deathmatch wrestlers they're a bit like it comes across as a little bit kind of toxic because i watched the dark side of the ring and it was the nick gage episode and i know how you love nick gage and he was talking about certain spots and they had an interview with with john moxley you know dean ambrose from wwe and he had like one of his earlier matches and dean ambrose was coming out and moxley was coming out in normal wrestling gear and he was going up against nick gage and nick gage was like well what do you want to do and he's like well you're the deathmatch veteran you you do whatever just like here here are my limits don't go up to them and the first thing that nick gage did he went past moxley's limits and i think one of them was like i don't want you to cheese not cheese grater what's a, a pizza cutter and i don't really want you to like open me up properly and the, so the first thing he did he got and then put the pizza cutter in his mouth and like cut cut the size of his mouth and it's like is that just nick gage being a dickhead or is that whole kind of wrestling scene in, in a bit like right there's wrestlers and then there's deathmatch wrestlers like we can go out there we can mutilate ourselves we can go out there we can bleed we can punch each other you know we can potato each other we can slap each other we can go out there with no shoes on we can get put through tables and get back up and do it again is it like we, we uh, can go out over... there we can go out there with a couple of shotguns and uh, and rob a bank and do a load of time in prison nick nick gage is just a cocksucker he did the same thing to David Arquette. Like, he he, he nearly mm, fucking... It was in that documentary, yeah. Yeah, he nearly... I don't know what he nearly did to him. I think he nearly cut his throat. Like, you know... Yeah, so there, there was a spot, and David Arquette basically said, like, I'll do the death match because I want to do it and it'll be fun, but, like, I don't want you to cut my forehead. So what was the first thing he did? Gets him on the floor, grabs a light tube, and goes to, like, basically cut him across the forehead. David Arquette like wigs out a little bit and in in the process he cuts his throat basically so david arquette's sitting there like holding his throat with his neck bleeding basically just wanting to beat the heck out of nick gage and then they just go to the finish david arquette gets pinned and just walks out and it's like oh that was good wasn't it good bit of business there brilliant and the crowd is like oh cool yeah we got to see nick gage beat up david arquette that was fun wasn't it yeah no no that's bullshit like that's just bravado and fucking anything put nick gage in the ring with lesnar do you know what I mean? That's a fighter. That's a real man. That's someone who's taken Brock Lesnar, someone who's taken his craft 
um, and his physique and his training and everything incredibly seriously all his life. And in the process has turned himself into a fucking fighting and killing machine uh, without using one light tube. Put him in the ring with Brock Lesnar and Brock Lesnar will kill him in 30 seconds. What Nick Gage is doing is abusing people. He that like like he said, like with John Moxley and David Arquette, they're talking in the back. You know, these guys are giving this fucking drug addled bank robber their body. They're trusting him for some fucking unknown reason. And he's abusing that trust. That isn't a hard man. That's that's an arsehole. And people come and turn around and say, you know, oh, right, that's just that's just Nick. You know, he's he's super hardcore. He's super this. He's super that. No, he's not. He's a super cunt. You know, you don't do that to people. This is the difference between maybe professional wrestling and deathmatch wrestling. Maybe you do have to jump through these hoops of of lunatic things that, that you're willing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Falling Star Wrestling is proud to introduce a new sponsor. The sponsor is called Die Your Own Way. Now, what this company is, it's a fantastic new company. Shawnee, do you ever um, wake up even now at your age with aches and pains from wrestling and just, you know, maybe you've got a little bit of arthritis you don't know about, a few neck pains. Do you ever, do you ever wake up feeling a bit sore from your years of wrestling? All the time, especially after doing silly things like jump through ladders. I can wake up with my back aching. Even when I've not been wrestling, sometimes I might bend over or put my slippers on and get my pipe and my back will just go twing. And that's me done. Aches and pains all week. Exactly. Well, imagine what an 80-year-old must feel like. Even an 80-year-old man or woman who's just led a normal life. Maybe the man's been a bricklayer. Maybe the woman's worked as a secretary or a dentist or a doctor. Any career. At the end of the the day, eight years old, you're going to feel a bit knocked about. You're going to be in pain. It's a problem that I think affects a lot of old people. Die Your Own Way has come up with an extremely simple solution. To apply, you have to be at least 75 years or over. Basically, what they do is is they send you a um, sort of like a pamphlet-style little book there with a list of ways you would like to be killed. So I've got the actual pamphlet here. They sent me an example here. So uh, there's asphyxiation. There's just general morphine overdose. There's been cut in half with a chainsaw, which is a weird one, shot in the back with a with a harpoon. There's loads of different ways. And basically what you do is you're in pain, you're in agony. There's no signs of you dying naturally because you you know your organs are in quite good health. But you're just in pain, Sean. You're just in pain and you want to go. So what you do is you send the pamphlet off to this amazing company here, Die Your Own Way. And what they'll do is, is they'll send someone around. Sometimes you don't even need to send someone around. It could just be uh, cyanide capsules. Or they send them in the post. Loads of different ways to die. Loads of different options on here. All you've got to do is tick the right box. Send the, the pamphlet there to the right address. This company will make sure that you die in the dignified way that you have chosen. I've actually got a review here from a Mrs. Margaret Felch. Now, Margaret Felch sent in a wonderful review. She said, die your own way, provide a fantastic service. My choice of death was being shot at point blank range with a grenade launcher. They did exactly what they said on the tin. All I saw was the grenade launcher pointed at my face. And the next thing was instantaneous death. I can't praise these guys highly enough. Five out of five review. Thank you very much there for your review. Um, from beyond the grave that that sounds fantastic so 
die your own way, ladies and gentlemen. They sound like a fantastic uh, organisation. If you're in pain, if you're in agony, then these guys are the guys to go for. Going back to what you said about the, the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a go at one, maybe one day and stuff, and the adrenaline and all that and whatnot. But when you, you know, sawed off that top rope through that table and you were lying there just, you know, in the middle of Linsport, you know, with all those fucking God knows how many people cheering for you and the big ooh and the big pop and whatever. If we'd have gone back there next Monday and you would have done that, but this time you would have put a sheet of glass on the table, do you think you would have got much more of a pop? The reason that jump through the table work, and you know as, as well as I do, is because you guys built that freeway story up for, for months and did some really cool things and had added some really cool bits to your storyline. And that was the crescendo. That was the pinnacle. That was the end of it. That big, massive bump that you took and that big, massive risk you took was worth it not only for your for your fucking adrenaline and you know and to do something that looks amazing on tape and looks cool and you know and luckily you came away from but also fits in with the story and that and that to me is fine and that whole match and whatever you did there all the stuff you did there was fine because the story built up to the point where all three of you hated each other and you knew you had to go to that next level to try to try and beat each other otherwise no one was going to lay down so that makes sense. And I think that that adrenaline that you got from that, say you thought, fuck, I need to do more of this kind of wrestling because that adrenaline you got really, you know, really hit the spot and fucking gave you that bug for that sort of thing. After a while, it's like anything, any kind of adrenaline or any kind of drug that you use and or drug that you take or, or thing that you like doing or whatever, it's going to wear off. And I think it wears off with the crowd too. So do you get what I mean? So if you you really love that and it gives you the idea of like, fucking hell, I'd like to do a bit more of that. Well, I'll, if I do a bit, bit more a year down the road, I'll get the same pump and it'll get the same reaction because because we built up another storyline where that particular move I did was essential to the storyline. That works. But if you did the same every week with different people for no story and no real payoff, I don't think I just don't think the reaction is going to be quite the same. Going back to death matches, I just think that the the sort of crowd who come to watch death match shows, I don't think bad of them. I, honestly, I don't. But I don't think that there's a lot you can do that will impress them. And you know, funnily enough, I think it's either 2002 or 2003. But do you know what the CZW? match of the year was in 2002-2003. Do you know what the match of the year was? Bear in mind all the insane and lunatic shit they do. Was it the one from the really famous clip where the guy that dresses up like a snake hypnotised the crowd and everybody did a dance? Because that was brilliant. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. If you've not seen that clip, it's brilliant. Was it when the guy dressed up as Michael Jackson and did a moonwalk DDT? Nope. Was it something to do with a high flyer? It was... Johnny Storm and Jodie Flash. Amazing. See? Amazing. See? See? And they did not use one fucking weapon. CZW watched them do their shit over here, you know, for FWA and for who else and forever, for Auric or whatever. I don't fucking know. For, you know, I, I think it was, I'm, I'm going to say 2003. So they've been going quite a while. 
Jodie Fleisch was quite thin in it. Johnny Storm had his long hair and they went out there for a couple of months. And I think they did quite a bit for CZW before and after that. But they had a particularly good match and I have seen it and it is really good. They busted out all their high flyer moves. They busted out all their cool shit and did all their amazing stuff. But there wasn't one chair used. And if there was, that was about it. But there wasn't any light tubes, any pins, any thumbtacks, any anything. It was just Johnny Storm and Jody Fleisch busting out. And to me, that sort of says something a little bit. If I was a promoter, I would have taken a little bit of a look at that. But uh, yeah, that was the match of the year that year. And bearing in mind all the people's fucking hands that had been fucking put through threshing machines, all the people that had fucking, you know, been hung up by meat hooks. And I've seen that. I've seen someone get hung up by meat hooks on a, on a hardcore show. And all the people that have been hit with fucking strimmers and all the people that had landed on thumbtacks and had them, you know, slowly put in their eyeballs. The match of the year was Johnny Storm and Jody Fleisch because they put on a high-flying match which made sense and had some amazing shit in it. And that says it all, doesn't it? In some ways, in some way, shape and form. They told a story, did some amazing shit, which the crowd probably hadn't seen before because it was, you know, it's Johnny and Jody. They come up with some cool stuff. Then the next match was probably someone whacking someone over the head with a baseball bat for the pit nails or pins or whatever. And it just it just didn't didn't seem to quite quite hit the spot. So do you think a lot of these deathmatch wrestling fans haven't seen enough good wrestling to really realise what they're watching is is actually not really wrestling? Or do you think just what they like? Or, or you know, you can, I suppose I can't speak for whatever, but any deathmatch show that I've ever seen, the most people I've ever seen there is probably round about, you know, a, a, a thousand and, and that's I'm not including ECW because I don't think that's deathmatch but even that had its height there, I think there is a height and a cap on deathmatch wrestling which basically once you get to that point you're not going to exceed it with the crowd because you've basically got all the guys that A are allowed to watch it and B want to watch it there yeah I agree yeah there is definitely a cap because I'm sure the demographic of deathmatch attendees is majority, I'm going to say 95% male, and they're all going to be above the age of 18, probably above the age of 21 in the US because of the sheer violence and stuff like that. And I can't imagine there's many people over the age of probably 45, 50. So there's only so many people that are A, the age, B, that gender, and C, actually enjoy that kind of level of violence. So you mentioned ECW there as well. There was a cap to ECW as well. They was in a similar kind of demographic as well and they could only push things as far as they could go and what happened to them circling back to your match of the year with jody and johnny why i think the czw and sort of deathmatch crowd love that is because that was the difference so we often get match of the year in falling star wrestling they're often a gimmick match or a hardcore match or something that the fans haven't seen month in and month out you know they will often see a tag team match they will often see a singles match a three-way match they might even see a four or five-way match but only comes around once a once in a blue moon once every three years four years five years you might see 
a hardcore match or a false count anywhere match or a ladder match or a strap match or any of those kinds of things. So that's why I think the crowd go, oh, I haven't seen that either ever or I haven't seen that in a while. I think, you know, X match was match of the year, whereas the CZW fans, they're so desensitized to seeing blood and guts and violence and strimmers and nails and pins and thumbtacks and light tubes that they go, oh my God. Did that guy just do a 720 DDT off the top rope and the other guy spiked on his head and he looked like he was dead and he was actually selling? Oh my God, is that guy all right? Oh no, that was just Johnny Storm taking a DDT and selling. Like they're probably looking at that and going, wow, that's that's different because I've seen people get smashed through glass and just get up and start punching the other guy. But the other guy jumped on the top rope, span around, span around again, grabbed the other guy, hit him with a DDT, and the other guy stayed down for a while and actually sold. So, like, that to me is probably why that was match of the year. And that to me is why the thing I mentioned with the the guy that dresses like a cobra and did the whole hypnotizing thing, because they're very different. I think that's the thing in wrestling. You, you can escalate as much as you want. You can go from using one thumbtack to 10 to, you know, 100,000. Then you can go from one light tube to 100,000 light tubes. But... When you see something so very different, I think that's when the crowd go, hmm, I really enjoyed that. And that's when they put their votes in the box and then they go, Johnny and Jody, match of the year. Is that what you reckon, Jim? Yeah, I do. I totally do. And I think it's the same with every promotion that does that. And it's the same with Falling Star. I think this year is the only real year. And by that, I mean the vote at Christmas. I think it's the only real year where the actual match of the year in my view what was the one the actual match of the year which was obviously jack versus cali gray and that's not putting anything down and there's and there's some matches that i've probably probably forgotten but that was probably just one-on-one no rules just fucking two guys busting out and doing moves that probably fsw fans aren't used to but still we've seen before that, you know, but the story and just the way it worked and the setup, but everything just went great that night. So I think that was the, the one year where it, the, the match of the year, the won the match of the year, I think in years previous, and I'm not saying they're bad matches, the one that the ones that have won in years previous, because I've won a couple. I think the matches of the year, have, I think you could probably change the title to most remembered match of the year. And the most remembered match of the year is going to be probably one of the most different matches of the year. Again, still a great match, but it's different, you know. So that's what sticks in people's heads. So they'll go, I'll put Jimmy Starr and, and uh, Dark Wolf Matt Waters in that ladder match because it was the only ladder match I've ever seen. It was a fucking cool match, but it's the only ladder match I've ever seen. Oh, shit, we'll put, you know, BBC and, and whatever in, in that hardcore match and whatever because, you know, even though they did two, I've, that was fucking crazy. I can still remember PVC soaring off that, what do you call it? There's bits of it that they can remember where as a pure wrestling match, a great wrestling match that worked and told a story, it might have been lost in the shuffle because they've seen so many cool wrestling matches that year. And I think that's the point you're trying to make with the CCW thing. It's like, yeah, people have seen things happen, but they they hadn't quite seen the the caliber of flying and the caliber of storytelling and the caliber of match in CCW that 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 year they saw Johnny Storm and Jody Fleischer. And it was different. So because it was different, it sticks in people's minds. And that's maybe that's the idea sometimes with the death match. Maybe once in a blue moon, 
you know, once every six months, once every year or whatever, you know, there are some promotions out there and bigger promotions that can get away with the death match. And it could be awesome and it could be match of the year. But as for having tournaments and as for having like whole shows that are dedicated just purely to a death match, you know, all that's going to do is desensitize a crowd and you're going to have a locker room full of pert wrestlers and you're going to have a, a, a graveyard full of fucking dead wrestlers because they, they, they're going to eventually just go too far. Because, you know, at the end of the day, how far can you go, you know? Now, I will put this to you. I have a case where I believe that deathmatch wrestling had psychology. Now, get this. I saw this on the internet, and I don't know how true this is, and I think it was on possibly something like Botchamania. So there was this event, and I think it was a a cage of death match and it had a bunch of guys in it. One of them was the Necro Butcher who we talked about earlier on. Another one was Zandig and another one was Justice Payne who was Nick Gage's brother who was actually in shape, wore wrestling gear and could actually work. So obviously Necro Butcher is the kind of guy he's not going to do, you know, Hurricanes, he's not going to do kind of technical wrestling and stuff like that. And he is known to be a bit of a sandbag. Now what we mean by sandbag is when we're in the ring and I was going to pick Jimmy up and I get him in the position, I expect Jim to help me out a little bit and boost up and and come down with me and jump up and I'm going to give him the slam. So I don't think Necro Butcher likes to post. I think he's a bit of a sandbag. So at one point, I think there was meant to be a spot where Justice Payne does does like the burning hammer finish, which is like sort of a Death Valley driver, but instead of the person being on the person's shoulders with their chest on the shoulders, they're on the back, almost like a torture rack thing. And then they grab their head and they almost kind of dump them on the head. I think it's called a burning hammer. So I think there was a spot in the match where Justice Payne was meant to pick up Necro Butcher for a burning hammer. Butcher wasn't really having any of this. So Justice Payne, with being a bit muscular and, a, you know, having an actual wrestling ability, picks Necro Butcher up legit, but in, in that kind of slips and basically dumps Butcher on his head. Butcher, obviously, is very, very angry. So he gets up immediately after, you know, taking this guy's finish. And I think it might have even been to the outside. It was really rough, really awful looking, proper like CZW style where you're just like, oh, that person could be dead. But anyway, Butcher jumps up and he just starts punching just his pain in the head, like like you've never seen before. Not worked, not gimmicked anything. You can see closed fists, palm strikes to the head, gets him in the corner and, you know, Necro Butcher doesn't wear any boots in the ring and he's stomping a mud hole like you've never seen. Kicks to the head, kicks right in the head. And like, I think it's getting to the point where Justice Payne is just sitting in the corner and he is out. So Zandig, in the meantime, sees this and goes, ah, I need to sort something out because A, there's, I might be sort of witnessing a murder right here. And, you know, B, we've got to get on with this match. So what he does, because he knows that Necro Butcher is a massive fan of Jake the Snake. And if Jake the Snake has done anything to this professional wrestling business is he's brought in the DDT. And throughout his entire career, the DDT was a protected finish where everybody sold it and you never got up for it. So in his infinite wisdom, Zandig turns Necro Butcher around, kicks him in the gut, gives him a DDT, knowing that Necro Butcher would sell the DDT and stop beating the crap out of Justice Payne. Now tell me there's not psychology in that, Jimmy Starr. There, yeah, well, there's definitely <laughs> definitely some quick thinking going on, yeah. <clears throat> there's definitely some quick thinking. Fucking, yeah, that just sounds like a horrible thing to watch, to be honest with you, in a... In a in a horrible match, did was was the dude who was getting his face kicked in and shit all right? Or did he did they carry on? Did what was there a sort of a, 
an apology in the match or, or did they just carry it on? Or was, I was have no idea because the clip ended then. The, the whole clip was based around Necro Butcher taking this DDT and stopping beating the crap out of the other guy. So I have no idea what happened. Don't know what the finish was. Don't know how the match went. Don't know whether, you know, they, they resolved their beef or not. I just thought it was a funny story that Necro Butcher was happy to take a DDT and sell it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Even, even in complete rage that DDT (laughs) DDT fucking sorted him out which he probably took poorly knowing him but the thing is is for example like you knew Necro Butcher was a sandbagger and you was an experienced wrestler the last thing you would try and do on a on a sandbagging fucking stream hardcore you know wrestler is is a burning hammer you would assume that that guy probably wouldn't be too up for that you would find someone else in the ring who you could do it on or you wouldn't do it you know experienced fucking professionals would just go right let's probably throw that out the window for this particular point and, <laughs> and actually throw someone out of a window and, you know and uh, which that crap but you would have quite probably quite happily take and just you know give it up rather than keep trying to hoist up this sandbagging fucking you know dirt box who won't go with it and then when you eventually try and do it it just it just all goes all goes fucked up that story you told me shows a lot of things one that crab butcher if he's a sandbagger he needs to learn a post or or you know or he needs to tell people beforehand i'm a sandbagging bastard don't try any moves on me just hit me with things and throw me out of things and throw me off of things and i'll be happy with that number two it shows inexperience of the guy who tried to do it by keep trying to pick it pick him up i suppose i suppose yeah Zand, sandy rescued it i don't know how long he's been wrestling or what what is his credentials are i know that he obviously owned he obviously owned CZW for a while. There's there, there's another good story to end this to end this podcast on, which shows how much of a dick wrestlers can be, and also how much of a mark wrestlers can be, and also how people think they're going to draw a good crowd by bringing someone over, but not not necessarily because you think more highly of that wrestler than other people do. Now there was a promotion in. Japan just before sort of ECW kicked off the ground called FMW. Do you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. You ever heard of FMW? Yeah. Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling is where Hayabusa and all that sort of stuff started out. Now, their hero, if I remember rightly, their hero was a guy called uh, Anita. That was it, Anita. Right, so Anita is the name of the dude, right? So Anita initially started up martial art, frontier martial arts wrestling. So one of the first shitty things he did was obviously when frontier martial arts wrestling was started and was coming up, it was actually quite a profitable business. I think it was either the second or third biggest promotion in Japan. But then over the years, they started losing quite a few of their big wrestlers. People like Terry Funk and Cactus Jack didn't come over, so they lost a lot of their sort of guys and guys because they were in the WWE. And he hurt himself as well. Hayabusa hurt himself, in fact, from an injury he never really recovered from, you know, where Hayabusa did that springboard off the middle rope to do a moonsault. The rope mm, snapped yeah, and he, yeah, his file and he ended up arching over to do the moonsault and just snapping his neck. So he he lasted, he lived for a long time after that. Wheelchair. Paralyzed down. from the waist down, wasn't he? Paralyzed, Paralyzed or maybe from the neck down? 
paralyzed from the neck down from the start. Then he got a bit of feeling back, but inevitably the injury somehow caused his death some sort of 10 to 15 years later. So he never really recovered fully. He would never obviously got back in the ring. And anyway, Anita, when he knew his business was in the shit, sold the business to another gentleman whose name escapes me. I don't think he was a wrestler, but he sold the business and he sold the business to this dude based based on the fact that it was a profitable wrestling company, still not as profitable as it was, but still turning over a good trade and with a fresh, you know, pair of eyes looking at it and, you know, maybe could make a success of it again. But and so some guy bought it. Anita was turned out. It was Anita was in debt to load of Yakuza guys. So he sold this business and passed on the debt to this poor bastard who had no knowledge of the debt that Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling was in. Had no knowledge of the of the amount of money and had no knowledge that he now bought a business for a ridiculous amount of money and didn't have enough to pay the debt. So the bloke went and hung himself, I believe. He killed himself in some way, shape or form, because if he didn't do it, the Yakuza were going to do it in a much more horrific way. So Kanita did that, which was nice of him. But more recently, there was apparently a dream match between two hardcore icons, which, again, I'm going to bring up the name for because I, I don't know. But the guy we were talking about earlier on who used to own combat zone wrestling what was his name john zandig john zandig he sold it to another guy and i'm just i'm just gonna quickly look now because i know i should i'm terrible with names i know i should know or oh hang on did dj hyde or david mark it says david marquez 2017 to present i think it is dj hyde yeah yeah dj hyde was the guy who ran it for quite a long time and he was hated heel in, in CZW. So sort of a dream match was between him and Onita. And they set it up. They managed to set it up. And Onita wanted $20,000 for the show. And he wanted, obviously, it be flown over, put up, all that sort of stuff. So he wanted sort of, you know what he thought was first style treatment fuck knows how old he was when they put this match on i mean he must have been must have been six in his 60s if he was if he was any type of age so they agreed they promoted the show heavily amongst the hardcore wrestling fans dream in america you know this was going to be the 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 showdown of all showdowns the dj hyde against anita blah 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 i think they drew about I don't know, just under 2,000 people, which for a hardcore show ain't too bad. But when you're paying 20 grand just for one wrestler, plus his flights, plus his exits, you've done a bollock already as far as I'm concerned. You know, you might make it up in other ways with sponsors and things like that. But again, you've got a whole show to put on around that. And this was probably filled with, you know, the best of the best of deathmatch wrestlers. So... I'm convinced financially it probably crippled the company quite in quite a heavy way. And this was all done under the CZW banner. And when Onita came down, they apparently planned a match and a little, you know, all this sort of shit. And they were going to use fire for the end spot and they were going to go for it sort of thing. Anita obviously wasn't going to be as pulverized as DJ Hyde, but I assume that 
DJ Hyde knew that going into the match that Anita couldn't do what he used to do, but you know he might he was probably going to take some shit. Anyway, <clears throat> the match happened and Anita just pulverized this bloke, and I mean he fucking he cut him, he smashed him about, legitimate broken glass, fucking everywhere, barbed wire. He just totally abused this guy, and this guy was probably in too much awe and pain to reciprocate with any kind of receipt. Um, And essentially, from what I remember reading, and again, any listeners out there who who know the story better than I do, the fire spot at the end, which was meant to be a sort of fire on a table, which was loaded with other stuff that Anita was going to put this DJ Hyde on, basically ended up with Onita just setting this guy on fire and really burning him bad, burning him to the point where he spent quite a lot of time in intensive care. And that was that was a match. They paid Onita that amount of money. He didn't really take a great deal during the match. I haven't seen the match, so I can't confirm that. But I do know that the guy had severe injuries, DJ Hyde, and severe burns and was left with a severe fucking financial hole in CCW, you know, from this Onita guy. You know, why would you fucking do that? Do you know what I mean? Why would you do that to someone who's paying you $20,000 of money that he's probably put up front himself or dug so deep in the business for? It just thinking in his head, thinking in his fucking cabbage bashed up head that, that's going to draw enough to be able to, you know, recompensate the the, the money that they spent on that wrestler and, and also the rest of the show and card and whatever. It was, it was fucked from square one because, I mean, if Anita was wrestling in a hall down the road, I wouldn't go and see it. So, you know, and I know I'm not a deathmatch fan, but I know who Anita is and I have respect for what he did for... You know, his his own career in FMW was, you know, a huge trend. And, you know, just it started ECW, really. It was a big thing. So, you know, I know how big of a star he was. As an older guy, to go and do that to someone is, is sickening to virtually try and kill someone. And, you know, in my mind, that's sort of where Deathmatch Wrestling... Has, has got to him, in my opinion. People, you know, I know you can't you, you can't account for how Onita's going to behave on the day or what he's going to do on the day, but, you know, there's tools and equipment there that can genuinely kill people. And if, if you can't trust someone not to use those implements in the safest way possible, you know, you would assume someone like Onita, you'll be able to, to do that with, but... Obviously, you couldn't. It's just, I suppose, just wrapping it up in my mind. I do believe that there can be psychology in a death match. I don't believe a lot of people can do it. And I believe it's full of a lot of people, a lot of a lot of men who have definitely got some psychological issues and can't get through the training and the dedication it takes to be a proper worker who can tell a story and gets the psychology of professional wrestling. That's sort of my take on it. But there are guys out there who, who, who are good workers and good deathmatch wrestlers. And if you put those together, 
I don't see why you can't get a good death match. I've seen some great hardcore matches and some good extreme matches, but as far as death matches goes, I don't think I've seen any where I thought, fuck, that was great, you know. And that was the show for today. And if you couldn't tell, myself and Jimmy recorded that show back in February. So if anything was out of date, we apologize. But regardless, we really hope you enjoyed the show today as much as we enjoy recording it for you. Thanks to my tag team partner and podcast pal, Jimmy Starr, as always. The Disaster Artist will be in action this Saturday at the Western Sports and Social Club for Fight Night. We join stars like Bobby Adams, Furo, and even the returning deathmatch connoisseur himself, Big F and Joe. The doors open at 6.30 with the action commencing at 7.30. Tickets are £8 and are available on the door. We hope to see you there. It's going to be a hot one for sure. Ensure that wherever you are in the world, you're following Falling Star Wrestling on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Falling Star Wrestling. Even if you're listening from Switzerland or Bulgaria, you can find everything that goes down on Fight Night by checking out our social media pages. The Falling Star Wrestling podcast is always looking for feedback, so jump into our DMs or even leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and if we don't see you on Saturday, we'll catch you next time for another edition of the Falling Star Wrestling Podcast. See ya.